sir, we're at the top of the hour. So if you're ready, we'll get this thing rolling. You bet. Thanks. And, and appreciate you having me here today. Nah, I appreciate it. So I want to welcome everybody this morning. And I'm Doug Berkey, the executive director at the Mitchell Institute. And just want to welcome everybody to our nuclear deterrence forum series. And I also want to thank Major General Luton for joining us today. It's a commander of 20th Air Force. He's responsible for more than 12,000 airmen providing nuclear global strike and nuclear weapons sustainment for the U.S. Air Force. 30-year veteran of the Air Force, Major General Lutton, previously served as a joint staff as a Deputy Director for Nuclear Deterrence and Homeland Defense Operations. And to our audience, we understand that General Lutton is joining us from a secure facility, so thank you for understanding if the video is a bit choppy at times. It shouldn't affect what the General has to share. And so with that, sir, thanks again for making time to join us today. And I'd like to start off by giving you an opportunity to make a few opening remarks regarding the challenges and, and opportunities facing your team. And as a note to our audience, feel free to raise your hand using the function on the app or submit a question in the Q&A window anytime during the, the event here. Thanks, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be with the Mitchell Institute. I think it's an exciting time, uh, not only for our Air Force, but for Global Strike Command as we uh, look at sustaining our Minuteman Three Force uh, while we begin the modernization process for the ground-based strategic deterrent. And, and so it's just an exciting opportunity uh, to lead our airmen, and, and it's a great time to be in 20th Air Force and Global Strike Command. I appreciate it. So, sir, just to, to dig a bit deeper into, into some of these topics that you raised, in a recent op-ed in Breaking Defense, you argued that the modernization of U.S. nuclear forces is more about modern, not just more. Can you elaborate on this point? Sure. Um, I think as you look at uh, what has publicly been discussed on the ground-based strategic deterrent or uh, any element of our nuclear triad, it's, it's clearly uh, not a position that we're looking for uh, more, we're looking for modern. I mean, I think General Hyten said it best uh, when he said, if you look at all our um, equipment on the nuclear enterprise side, it's just old. Uh, and I even quoted him in that article. And I mean, that's the fact. Uh, this isn't a race. Uh, the Congressional Research uh, Service reported out on that, that it isn't an arms race, uh, that Russia would be modernizing, again, because their equipment is old. We're modernizing because our equipment is old. Uh, and I think it's absolutely critical uh, to do that, to sustain a deterrent force for our nation going into the future. So, sir, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face as you address the need to maintain the 50-year-old Minuteman three weapon systems for another 15 years as this plays out? Yeah, I, I would say that it, uh, not a challenge in a negative way, but um, uh, opening the dialogue and the discussion of uh, sustainment and modernization are not parallel efforts for us, uh, especially in the alert force. So it's understanding how we're gonna sustain while we modernize. Um, because for our approach uh, that we're taking, um, we are gonna modernize three intercontinental ballistic missile wings. At the same time, while we're modernizing one of those wings, the other two wings uh, need to provide that credible nuclear deterrent with the Minuteman three while we modernize. So. I think there are operational considerations that you wanna be aware of. So thinking in parallel um, isn't helpful. You wanna think of how those two things 
interact, how they uh, are interrelated. And it allows you quite honestly, in some areas um, to save money for the taxpayers. For example, um, if you were at base A, uh, let's say the first base that was getting modernized, which is already announced uh, and pending the Secretary of the Air Force's formal approval, but it's F.E. Warren Air Force Base, right? So if, if you're going to put things into F.E. Warren Air Force Base um, that are not forward compatible with GBSD, uh, that's probably not a wise investment, right? That, that investment is probably better off made at a Malmstrom or a Minot where you're going to have to sustain Minuteman 3 longer. So those are the things that we're working right now with uh, General Jenna Tempo's folks and the MAGCOM uh, at Global Strike Command. Uh, I appreciate those thoughts. You know, and there are a lot of people that are just talking about the fact that we could continue to do service life extensions on, on Minuteman 3 indefinitely. Uh, is that something you see as realistic? No, I don't think that's realistic at all. Um, and we, we have had the opportunity as an Air Force uh, to show that homework, if you will, of why that's not realistic. I understand that we're in a nuclear posture review right now, which is a very healthy process. And uh, I think we're going to be able to show that homework again, why that is not uh, the way forward. And in the article that you mentioned, um, we have pretty strong congressional support for modernization. And so I think when you look at both of those and our objective is main maintaining a credible deterrent now and into the future for our nation, modernization is the right way to go. Yeah. No, and I think also as an observer of this issue, I mean, it's important to note that this is transcended administrations, parties, et cetera. And so I think yes. you guys have done a great job lining up the facts to speak for themselves on that. So compliments to you and your team on that. Yep. So looking to the new system, GBSD, you know, we understand it's going to be a lot more modular when it's fielded. And we also understand that that will help with maintenance um, and mm -hmm. just on it. Could you elaborate upon this a little bit? Sure. Uh, the concept of modularity, I think, is critical. Um, for example, uh, the first system I operated on was the Peacekeeper weapon system, which was modern back in, uh, I would say, the late 80s, early 90s. And what that modularity does and why that saves you manpower is um, it, it's it's designed and built and constructed to be less maintenance intensive. What do I mean by that? As opposed to an action or activity that may require 20, 25 people to do a simple task. Now with a newly modernized system, you have a line replaceable unit. Think of a drawer that you can simply remove and replace that doesn't require five technicians, it may only require two technicians and requires maybe significantly less security forces. So those type of things aren't new to the intercontinental ballistic missile enterprise, um, but they're very different than what we have with Minuteman 3 right now. Minuteman 3 is a very labor intensive uh, weapon system. So that's exciting for me because I got to experience that with uh, Peacekeeper uh, very early on, the modularity and the line replaceable units and saw the benefit of it, not only uh, in manpower savings, but also in savings of time. 
for our airmen that are out in the missile complex doing maintenance. Yeah. And I'd also think one of the advantages too is just straight up you're dealing with if a current production um, force and, and supply base and all that. And obviously sure. three, it's, it's quite old at this point in time, which is, it's got to have challenges of its own. You, you bet. Yeah. So, you know, another issue of GBSD that people don't talk about as much on, on the outside, people focus on the missile, is, is really the notion of, of MC3. And mm -hmm. I understand that that's a huge priority, uh, updating the entire infrastructure surrounding that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the underlying philosophy in play with what you're trying to achieve with this new system and how it differs from what we have today? Well, I think uh, anytime you talk your nuclear command control communications, uh, that's really your bedrock of uh, your weapon system uh, because it, it allows us uh, to maintain absolute positive control of that weapon system. Uh, and so as we go forward, uh, and you were talking about uh, obsolescence of uh, potential supply chain items, I, I think that is also something that we keep an eye to on the nuclear command control communications. I would also say um, it's a, just a simple fact, right? Uh, and I'll date myself. Uh, I entered the Air Force before the internet, right? Uh, so our information technology is significantly different now than it was when we fielded Minuteman Three. And so uh, I think it's beneficial to advantage ourselves to that. Uh, and again, ensure that that bedrock, our nuclear command control and communication is always there and is always uh, leveraging our most current technologies. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Now, looking more towards, towards the threat piece of the equation and, and what deterrence means in the modern era, you know, we read in the news that, that China is really in, investing aggressively with new missile silos in their Western region, counts are upwards over 200 new silos. And as we understand it, they also have plans to double their nuclear stockpile in the next decade. How does this impact our nuclear deterrence calculations? Yeah, I, I think China is uh, very interesting. Um, and there, there was a great 2018 DIA report uh, that you know I'll commend to you and the audience on foreign nuclear development and proliferation. And it, it primarily called out Russia, China, and North Korea. Um, and, and it basically said, hey, there's, there's concerns in four to five areas. Those areas are increasing number of capabilities of weapons and existing programs, enduring security threats to weapons and material, countries developing delivery systems with increased capabilities, which I think you referenced China on that, and countries developing nuclear weapons with smaller yields, and then countries developing nuclear weapons without conducting large-scale nuclear tests. The interesting thing on China that I find is the uh, near complete lack of transparency, right? Uh, so I had the opportunity uh, when I was um, uh, a one-star to actually travel to China. And, you know, to, to say very complex society, uh, to say very complex um, decision-making process for their national security apparatus, I think is an understatement. Um, so when you combine those two, it begins to become very challenging as to understand why they're 
developing along the lines that they're developing, right? As reported, uh, I believe by the Washington Post, I think it was the Post reported um, the recent developments. Um, the interesting thing on the Department of Defense side is the Department of Defense publishes a China military power report every year. So that's unclassified, it's online, and I'd recommend the audience uh, take a look at that. Um, it, it talks about the PRC's strategic ambitions, their evolving view of the security landscape and concerns over survivability, which some posit is the reason why uh, they're a significant advancement. Don't have any firsthand knowledge of that, obviously. It, again, challenging to understand their national security decision-making uh, process, but clearly a lot of open source reporting from both DIA and the Department of Defense on it. So I would commend the audience to read that. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, and building off of that, that topic of China, you know, they're obviously not really subject to, to any strategic arms limitations or treaties at, at this point in time. And do you see their current pathway, this lack of, of a, a, an obligated top end really transferring over to the risk of an arms race at all? Is this an area where you think we should look to engage China with, with some dialogue to, to help form up some, some, uh, some new standards here? I, I do, actually. Uh, and I think the challenge is going to be on the Chinese side. And I'll go back to that visit uh, that I had. Um, I, was pretty, I was pretty amazed uh, when we had a, a dialogue uh, with uh, what I would call um, Chinese academic leadership, uh, basically their equivalent of the National War College, um, where they talked about um, treaties. And in, in fact, they talked about treaties and they wanted to know why the U.S. had so many treaties in the Indo-Pacific area of responsibility. And uh, so we had that dialogue and what they were still confounded by was why the United States would have a treaty because at least in these officers' minds, treaties were an indication of weakness. You know, great nations don't have treaties. Uh, so when I go back to understanding how complex China is, understanding how complex their national security decision-making process is, I think that's one of those things that we have to have in the forefront when we're dealing with the Chinese is, okay, how do they view a treaty? Uh, for us, it's a very natural part, as you alluded to, about norms of behavior. Um, the Chinese may not see it that way. Um, notwithstanding, I think we should still try and work with the Chinese. Um, and interestingly enough, I believe modernization is a critical part of that, right? Uh, modernization is a critical part of counterproliferation and modernization is a critical part of nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, so I, I think it is beneficial uh, to work with the Chinese. Uh, we'll see if the Chinese want to work with us. Uh, that's clearly up to our diplomats and our most senior military leaders uh, to approach them. But it, it makes sense to do that to me. I appreciate it. And it is a complex issue, yet so important. Mm -hmm. When we look about what this means to our allies and partners and, and having that, that blanket of, of protection through extended terms, it's just a lot in play here. So appreciate your thoughts there. Yeah. But turning back to the U.S., it's obviously no secret. Uh, anybody that picks up the newspaper can see that many uh, advocate for the, uh, 
the deferment or, or cancellation of, of plans to recapitalize the ICBM element of the triad. And, you know, their arguments generally go along the lines that, that submarines and, and bombers can carry the job alone. What are the risks with following that sort of suggested path? You know, I, I would start with, uh, before we talk about risks, I would start with how well the triad has served the nation, right? The, the triad has delivered strategic stability for the nation uh, for over uh, 50 years, right? And so I think there should be uh, uh, great analysis done um, before changes to that are made. I also think uh, what is required to look at is how far this nation has moved, right? If you just look in the very small time that I've been on active duty, uh, and rightfully so, uh, we have adjusted our nuclear posture uh, significantly over the last 30 years, significantly over the last 30 years, and rightfully so, right? Um, and I think along the way, there was a series of policy deliberations and congressional deliberations and national military strategy deliberations that inform that adjustment. So I think that's a healthy part of the process that we're going through right now. Uh, I just go back to the 2018 Defense Intelligence Report. I go back to the world we live in, not the one that I wanna live in, right? And, and go, uh, our nation is served exceptionally well uh, by a nuclear triad that is scaled uh, to what we have right now. No, and, and it's often a talking point for you and your team, but obviously the, uh, the fact that we live in the world in which we live without any major catastrophes at, at that level just proves that it's doing its job every day and uh, yeah. very powerful record. So, sir, you know, at this point, we, uh, we're at the end of our prepared questions, but I want to kick it over to our uh, question and answer uh, segment here. Just sure. to alert to our listeners, uh, on August 23rd, we're going to be hosting our next education series with uh, Dr. Stephen Blank, a senior fellow for Russia at the American Foreign Policy Council. So good uh, upcoming event. So now for everybody that would like to join for the Q&A feature, uh, if you can please either enter a question in the Q&A function or by using your raise your hand function on your device, I'll call on you. Uh, please unmute your mic and state your name and affiliation for our guest. And then uh, from there, uh, we will we'll go through these to the end of our time block. So with that, I've got a, a raised hand from Abraham Mashi. General Lutton, sorry about that, guys. Just had to unmute. Good to see you again, sir. Hey, good to see you. I hope you're well. Thank you. Likewise. Um, just uh, you mentioned China and the ICBM fields. Also, Russia has been acting aggressively near the eastern flank of NATO. Sir, uh, with the effort to do these do these pieces of news help to build public support and sway those congressmen that are still on the fence about GBSD uh, fully funding and fully modernizing? Um, and part of that question also, um, what for you, sir? is the most difficult part of your message to communicate to the public and to members of Congress. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, on the first one, Abraham, I, I think you'd have to ask the members if it helps them. I, I think anytime uh, you have transparency and anytime uh, the public 
uh, can understand what is going on around the world uh, and potential challenges to U.S. national security. I think an informed U.S. public is uh, is an I mean, it's critical. It's absolutely critical uh, to have an informed U.S. public. So to that standpoint, I, I think it's uh, key that our citizens have that information such that they can then begin that dialogue with their elected representative, whether they're uh, representatives of the House or members of the Senate. Uh, so I think that's uh, first and foremost, um, uh, almost uh, a precondition to having a national dialogue in our country is open, transparent media. Um, along the lines uh, of your second question, do you mind repeating that, please? Yeah, sure, sir. In the last few months, have you tweaked your message? I'll rephrase it. Have you tweaked your message um, realizing what is most challenging to communicate, to get, uh, to, to help the public better understand the urgency of fully modernizing? Well, I, thanks. And, and I think, uh, you know, not speaking for my boss, but definitely echoing, um, we're very consistent in our message. Uh, we're very consistent in the facts uh, along our message of why we need to modernize uh, the United States Air Force component uh, of our nuclear triad. And, and I think that consistency and that fact-based argument uh, has been successful. Um, and we need to continue uh, to make sure uh, that we articulate that in a very, you know, matter of fact, fact-based uh, way. And, and I think the way that's successful at doing that, quite honestly, is you bring those key decision makers and you bring those key leaders out uh, to our missile complexes and they sit down and they talk with the technicians. So uh, it's not a series of PowerPoint slides. It's not a series of talking points. It's how they interface with those young airmen uh, enlisted in officers every day and understand the challenges uh, that they confront every day maintaining our nuclear deterrent, whether that's in the bomber force, the ICBM force, or our nuclear command and control uh, communications force. Thank you for that, sir. Yep. Sir, we've got a, a question here that's it's typed in. Because the mission of our missile crews requires incredible discipline and precision. Will modernization of missile fields have any pluses or minuses for the missile crews in terms of morale and retention? Sure. I, I, I one, one, appreciate that. I think, two, uh, whenever you modernize, you're always looking to improve on uh, quality of service and quality of life. Uh, so that is absolutely something that we are working with our system program office on. Uh, for the ground-based strategic deterrent. How do we improve quality of service, quality of life for those airmen that'll be in those remote areas uh, continuing to pull nuclear alert? So absolutely. Got another question typed in here, and it's really asking about the transition between the current ICBM system and GBSD and anything you can speak to in, in the open environment about how that will be done organizationally and technically the, the handoff between the two systems? Sure, uh, I, I think uh, for the audience, first and foremost, it starts with our test and evaluation architecture, right? And so you see that even beginning today out at Vandenberg, uh, that there are um, certain facilities that are in the process or have been turned over uh, to folks to begin uh, converting them to the ground-based strategic deterrent so we stay on timeline, 
for our test and evaluation. That test and evaluation is critical to the operational fielding when we come to FE Warren Air Force Base. Um, and as I said earlier, it's important for us in the operational force to look at not only sustainment and modernization, not in parallel, but as they overlap. So what does that mean practically? That means there are things that we do today, and I'll use Army terminology, we're doing things today to set the conditions such that we will be successful in 36 months to transition to GBSD. Um, it, it's uh, what I would call a lot of housekeeping type of things, but also uh, sustainment logistics planning that start those uh, actions and activities to allow us to be successful um, 36 months from now, uh, 24 months from now, 12 months from now. And another question typed in here, and, and I'm going to I'm combining a few here. So, sure. Um, back to our, our conversation on China. Um, there are several uh, people that have written in indicating that, that China um, theoretically has a smaller number of warheads than we do. And so, how do you get them to the table for a dialogue? When theoretically, they're below where we are. Um, and, and thoughts on that? Sure. I, you know, I think. What I would say is, uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, to get somebody to the table requires a certain level of transparency, uh, and and to get, you know, another country to the table to begin a dialogue to have that transparency allows us uh, to communicate our uh, national security or diplomatic objectives, and then to understand Chinese national security or diplomatic objectives. And I'll just give you an example uh, with the United States uh, and Russia, right? Um, you know, the New START Treaty, uh, very healthy process for uh, bilateral uh, inspections when we do our New START Treaty inspections. I think that's well understood. Uh, the Russians understand that. We understand that. Uh, and that um, supports strategic stability across a range of areas, right? And so now how does one do that uh, with China? Uh, I think that's better left to the diplomats. Uh, they're, they're the professionals on, on how you approach uh, China in that area. I think militarily, it's beneficial from a strategic stability perspective to begin that dialogue. Appreciate that. Another question typed in here really is just asking for delineation. Of, of the full modernization steps that are in play with GBSD. So NC3 or, or other elements, I don't know if you have talking points to hit the wave tops there. Uh, so the question was the, the steps with respect to modernization? Just the different elements in play. So obviously oh. the missile, the, the actual. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think it's important with the GBSD modernization that, that it is a, a complete modernization, right? And so uh, if, if you were to think of it, as I talked about earlier, you know, your first step is what we're doing right now, which is at uh, Vandenberg, right? And it's at Vandenberg for two reasons, right? The first reason is our test and evaluation, our Western range is there. So we'll have to begin to convert those launch facilities to allow us to do the flight test uh, out of Vandenberg. Second of all, our schoolhouse is there for both our maintenance and our operators. Uh, so there'll be investments there that allow us to modernize and recapitalize facilities there uh, to begin the training uh, for our young operators and maintainers. Uh, 
Then you transition to the operational force here. Uh, and we're mindful of our US Strategic Command and Air Component Commander mission uh, that we have to continue to execute with the Minuteman 3 force while we're modernizing uh, for GBSD. So that is a synchronization uh, between those two. Uh, some of the details are classified, obviously, I won't get into those. Um, but uh, those are things, when I talk about setting the conditions, those are the type of plans we're, we're working right now, if you will, to understand, okay, these are the actions and activities that I need to do for Minuteman 3 sustainment to support the combatant commander while I'm modernizing the ground-based strategic deterrent. I appreciate that. Another question here, wondering why we don't consider the use of mobile launchers like China and Russia do. Um, my understanding, uh, at least from working on uh, one nuclear posture view is that that has been deliberated. Uh, it's just from a policy perspective, not something that's been chosen. Um, I, I, I will tell you, uh, and this is my perspective as a senior officer, um, uh, I, I don't think that fits with, with our country uh, per se, uh, not the least of which is we don't have 11 time zones, right? Uh, so there's a, there's a practical nature uh, when for the historians in the, uh, um, on the line, uh, it was actually looked at for a deployment posture for peacekeeper, um, but was not chosen then. So it's not, it's, it's something that's been looked at before in our US military history. It's just never been chosen. I understand. Question here on uh, back to NC3 uh, on the need for modernization for your communications architecture. Could you please elaborate more on how this integrates with the US Space Force and, and how that new uh, service is uh, playing into the equation here in terms of secure communication, resiliency, improved data flow, and early warning? No, I, I think that's great. And I think the Guardians are absolutely a critical piece of our nuclear modernization, right? So the capabilities that they provide to us today uh, are absolutely critical uh, for nuclear command control communication. So they're a very vested mission partner going forward uh, when we talk about nuclear command control communications modernization. Not the least of which is, um, you know, where, where you hear the Chief of Space Operations General Raymond and other leaders in the US Space Force uh, talking about uh, a contested environment, right, in space. Uh, so that's something we have to go eyes wide open now uh, that there could be potential elements of our nuclear command control communications uh, that could be contested. Uh, so having a mission partner like United States Space Force and United States Space Command is absolutely critical uh, to our deterrent force now and going into the future. No, that's a great answer. I'm going to combine a few questions here, but effectively, sure. they, they go to the point of how do you know when we're looking at arms control agreements and pressures uh, domestically to, to limit our, our strategic uh, deterrence capacity? How do you know when too small uh, and you hit that, that point with, with number of warheads and, and various systems and all just from, I guess, an academic perspective? How would you think about that, that question? Well, I think uh, that really rests in policy, right? Um, because if you look at the arc of time for our nuclear force posture, uh, it, 
it grew considerably from the 50s into the 60s and the 70s, and then fairly uh, deliberate step down uh, in the 70s, right? To the 80s, to the 90s, to the 2000s, to now. And I think appropriately so, um, because e each administration uh, has an opportunity to formulate their policy. Congress has an opportunity uh, to uh, you know, provide uh, direction in the form of National Defense Authorization Acts uh, about how uh, the US military will be structured. That's a constitutional responsibility. And then you have our national military senior leadership that is gonna inform that discussion with the national military strategy. So I, I think each administration, each senior level of our national military and each uh, member in Congress uh, has that check and balance, if you will, on US military force structure. Ultimately, US military force structure is a congressional responsibility by constitution. Uh, and so I think that's absolutely critical um, that those three parties uh, work together. I understand. Question here, uh, if you could comment on the D5 life extension program. Uh, I, I don't have any uh, firsthand knowledge of that. Uh, so I just refer you to Navy SSP. Nope, understand. Got another question here talking about human capital and that in okay. past years, we've heard a lot about the, uh, the need to really care for those who are modernizing and, and maintaining the nuclear enterprise and, and the generations are aging out. Now, obviously with GBSD in, in play, we've got a new generation of folks uh, in the field here, but could you speak to how you feel the health of the workforce is right now and uh, are, are we set for the long haul? I, I think uh, that is something that always has to be engaged on and always has to be monitored, always has to be assessed. So the command chief, Chief Charlie Orff and I uh, routinely uh, talk with our airmen uh, what we want those airmen to have is decision quality information uh, when they're making a decision for them and their families, right? Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of great uh, officers uh, and chiefs. Uh, one in particular, General Mosley, uh, had a comment. Uh, I don't know if it was original to him, but I'll, I'll cite it to him. You know, you recruit the airmen, but you retain the family. And, and so when Chief Orff and I are looking at our airmen in Global Strike Command, and in particular 28th Air Force, you know, developing and caring for those airmen and their families is a precondition for mission success. And so what does that mean? That means they have the developmental opportunities uh, that are world-class to achieve their objectives and their professional and personal goals. Uh, and they also have a healthy environment uh, that is uh, absolutely world-class so they and their families can thrive and that they wanna to choose to stay with the United States Air Force. I think an interesting approach that Chief Orff and I are taking now is opening up the eyes of our airmen um, to reserve opportunities. Uh, so with Air Force Reserve Command, AFRIC. In fact, this weekend, uh, I'll go to a uh, RTA uh, down at Buckley with our 20th Air Force Reserve Airmen. We did one virtually last year. So those are really powerful. Why they're powerful, and, and it may not be well understood, is the Guard and Reserve are, are not their key components, but historically haven't been large components of the land-based nuclear force. So our airmen tend to take these uh, 
you know, what I would call zero or one decisions when they're thinking about leaving the Air Force. They don't think total force. And so what we're trying to do now is educate and inform them on total force opportunities if they choose uh, to leave active duty service. And I think with our MA, Tony Angelo, General Angelo, um, we've been very successful in communicating that to our airmen. In fact, we have a deputy ops group commander now at Minot that's a reserve officer. Uh, we have reserve officers that are integrated into our flight test squadron. And then we have uh, a small number, I don't wanna overstate how many, but a small number of those reserve officers are actually uh, supporting some of our operational squadrons, in particular at Malmstrom and one officer at Minot as well. So a very um, uh, new feature to our force, but something that Chief and I uh, remain heavily engaged on. That very good question. Appreciate that. No, appreciate that a lot. Well, sir, we are at the uh, at the end of our time block. But I just wanted to thank you again so much for your time today. Your your thoughts and on this are incredible and such an important topic. And you know, when you think about it, so many moving pieces right now. And and obviously, this is what you you deal with day in day out. Uh, but for those of us uh, observing from the outside, it's it's incredibly uh, impressive to see your your insights uh, in the current environment right now. So, to you and our audience, thank you so much, and have a great aerospace day. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Y'all stay well. Take care, sir.